0: we saw from the very beginning of the series is that God is Trinity, meaning God Father, God the Spirit, God the Son, living together in perfect harmony, unity, fellowship, community within themselves, but God's love. He is loving. So out of love, God creates all things. All things are created, all things are good, from the cosmos to the tiniest little plankton and life on this planet. God created all things good. And so what had happened was the cheapest of all of God's creation was humanity. God created mankind in His own image. And then we saw through the series that one of the things that had happened is that God, uh, in creating man, also created man with free choice. And what happened is through that, man chooses to sin against God, he rebels against God, rather than living in fellowship and in community and submission to God, who is life. Man chooses to make his own decisions to live his own life, to fend for himself, and in doing so, basically chooses death. God enters into that creation and he judges. The way that God judged Adam and Eve was he banned them from the garden, which ultimately that means they were banished from the tree of life, which means they would not live forever. God actually did that as an act of mercy, which all forms of judgment really is born out of love. Okay, It's born out of love. And so what happened was, within this judgment, man is banned from the Garden of Eden, man will ultimately die. But because God is good, and because God is loving, God also seeks to restore this broken fellowship. So what we had seen through this is God enters or engages His fallen creation and seeks to engage them in restore relationship and fellowship once again. We see that God did this with Adam and Eve. So the next slide, you'll see that God does this this with Adam and Eve. God does does this with Noah. One of the things as you read through the story of Genesis, uh, that becomes pretty evident with chapter 3. Moving on into chapter 4, you begin to realize that things are pretty bad upon the planet. It's pretty bad. It's really evil. Mankind is consistently choosing to move away from God, to resist God to do what he really wants to do within his own heart, which is really to sin. Man wants to sin. We talk about freedom of choice, but in reality, that's kind of an illusion. We don't really have freedom of choice. We are born as sinners. We don't have any other opportunities or options to do anything but sin. We choose sin. Jesus puts it this way. Men love darkness rather than light because our deeds are evil. We actually have this horrific love affair going on. With darkness. That's the problem. So if you've ever asked yourself the question, why is humanity so messed up? It's because we have this ongoing affair with darkness. We can't break it. We don't know how to get out of it. We're so intertwined with it, we're actually its slave. And we just don't even know it. Okay. So what happens is God seeks to bring about a change to this. God engages Noah uh, you, by the time you get to chapter 5 and so on and so forth, you begin to read after the story of um, Cain and Abel. Um, Cain kills his own brother Abel. Around chapter 5, the storyline reads something like this. and So-and-so was born and gave birth to so-and-so, and then he died. So-and-so gave birth to so-and-so, had a baby, this kid, and then he died. And the storyline, you just kind of pull away from chapter 5 and kind of look at a bigger macro picture of it. You begin to realize chapter 5 is about death. It's just about death. It's it's not the way things God intended for it to be. So by the time you get to the flood or the days of Noah, God just simply says the whole world is evil. You begin to see this picture from Genesis, this beautiful Eden that God created, where mankind was in it. It was beautiful, it was good, and then what happens is it's just horrible wave of wickedness and evil begins to cover and sort of come over all of the earth. It's so bad that God says, the only way that we're going to get rid of this is to bring a flood that will wipe out every evil, every bit of evil upon the planet. God, just, uh, God extinguishes it. It kills it. destroys it. What happens is after Noah, shortly after that, right after the story of Noah, um, man invents this incredible technology called the brick. And he begins to realize that rather than Stacking stones on top of the next, they can actually stack these little things called bricks, and they make great like building blocks where you can build really big cities and then he build a really big one called Babel. And it basically continues this ongoing drama, this story, this narrative that mankind is really constantly on the verge of just trying very hard to make things a little bit better, but never really being able to do that. Everything is always on the verge of breaking. Everything is always on the verge of just, just outbreak of evil. It's like to the very core of humanity, there's this rottenness. And we try to cover up the odor. We try to like cover it up by, you know, plastic surgery or getting a good job or buying a big house or throwing another can of paint on it or buying more makeup or getting a degree and thinking that somehow maybe by me engage, I'm going to make things better. In reality, it's, it's like there's, there's rottenness through and through to the core. And what happens is God realizes that evil is just all over the planet. People are hurting one another. There's constant conflict between man and environment, between man and man, between man and God, and man and himself. That's the world that we find ourselves in today. So what had happened was God seeks to reverse this. So what what happens in around Genesis 12, God calls a guy by the name of Abram. Later changes his name to Abraham. And God says to Abram, he says, listen, I'm calling you so that if you follow me, I want you to be blessed in order to be a blessing. And if you follow me, as you follow me, all the nations on the planet will be blessed. Okay? So God's scope is eternal blessing. In a global way. Make sure you understand that. God's engagement with Abraham is ultimately to bless all things. Let me put it to you another way. God's scope in calling Abraham was to bring about a reversal of the evil. It was basically to set about an assault against wickedness, against death, against destruction... This was God's way of really trying to reverse things. In other words, it was kind of like a resistance movement against the wickedness that had become so prevalent throughout the world. So God says, Abram, I want you to be blessed so you can be a blessing. You follow me. But in order in that patriarchal society to make sure that people are really taking God seriously, God wants them to understand, I'm very serious about this. I'm not just calling you to hang out. I'm not just calling you so I can give you money. That's not a good deal for me. God's just like, listen, I want to make sure that you really understand my global intentions for this. My intentions are not to just simply bless you so that you would be sort of this vessel of blessing so that you can boast in yourself because what happens is you'll end up becoming just like the rest of the world. You'll try to protect your blessing. You'll try to secure your wealth. And then you got to pay people to protect you, and if people take advantage of it, and you'll go out and you kill them, and you'll be end up just like the rest of the world. God says, no, 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 I want to reverse that. I want to set a, an assault against the wickedness that has become so prevalent. So I want to make sure you understand that I'm serious about blessing. So you got to ask the question, how does God get the attention of men in a patriarchal society that His intentions are very serious? He's not messing around here. he have got to get the attention of the men. Patriarchal society. The way that an individual continues to expand his name, expand his family, expand his tribe, is by way of a male organ. God says, I want to make sure you understand how serious I am. I'm not joking around. I really want to bless All right, God, what do we got to do? I want you to be circumcised. That's how serious I am. I want every male who wants to join this resistance movement against evil and for blessing to be circumcised. (laughs) Abraham's an old guy now. Okay? It's kind of one of those things where you just like, I mean, anytime. I think for an eight-day-old kid, it's got to be painful. But imagine yourself in Abraham's age. It's like, okay, take a... Wash glass, stick in your mouth, bite down hard, and it's going to hurt, but this is the sign of showing how serious I am about joining this resistance movement with God to establish peace and blessing throughout the world. To go against what's been happening here of wickedness. To break this chain of violence and destruction and death. And so Abraham's family was to become this to become this resistance movement for good, for blessing, because they were going to be a family that was established upon God's Word, established upon obedience to the great God who will take care of them, who will bless them, who will uh, ground them in blessing, ground them in kindness, ground them in grace. That's the God that was calling Abraham to follow Him. Okay, does that make sense so far? Oh my gosh, you guys are leaving me just hanging. Does that make sense? You guys understand? You guys following so far? Okay. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll, I'll take both of your words for that. All right. So wh- what's happening here is God's basically saying, I'm very serious about reversing evil and establishing good and blessing throughout this world, so follow me. So that's what happens. Years go by, what takes place, I'm going to lo- leave a lot of history out because we've looked at most of this already. What happens is we fast forward a little bit to the time of Jesus. Jesus comes onto the planet. He is a son of Abraham. Right? He's a child of Abraham. Jesus was circumcised. We're told this in the Gospel accounts. Eighth day. So he bears in his marks the actual markings of circumcision to demonstrate that he is part of this covenant family determined to live out God's blessing to push back darkness. All right? So Jesus comes on the planet. Jesus lives. He goes through much of his life. Starts ministry around age 30. Luke tells us what happens is he calls uh, disciples to come follow him. Uh, Jesus casts out demons, heals people, restores broken hearted uh, people that were hurting, helps people who are hungry, he feeds them, opens eyes of the blind, speaks forth God's word, God's truth. Comes on occasion, Jesus comes into the synagogue and speaks forth God's word. He says, uh, this day, today... Uh, God's hand is upon me to really what he's saying is to push back the darkness, to push back the darkness, to bring blessing upon this earth. This is how Jesus starts out his ministry. Mark chapter 1 verse 9 says this In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth, Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he had come up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn, and the Spirit descending upon Him like a dove. And the voice came from heaven, and He says, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the Gospel. And Jesus said, The time is fulfilled, and the Kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. Jesus Himself. Now think about this. He's preaching the Gospel. What is Jesus saying? But think about this. Was Jesus on the scene being like, Hey, what's up guys? A guy named Jesus died, rose again from the dead. None of that happened yet. None of that happened yet. So what's he preaching? I think what he's saying is that listen, God has not abandoned you. God is on the move. God is here. He's going to be moving. And he wants to call people to follow him, to join this movement, to be a part of his blessing, to be blessed by him in order to be a blessing, to push back darkness. And ultimately, the Gospel finds ultimate fulfillment because Jesus dies, rises again from the dead, gives all the evidence of the world that we need to not only people here on this planet, but to also even, we're told throughout the Scriptures, even the demonic forces, that He indeed alone is King of kings, Lord of lords. It's great news. So Jesus basically starts His ministry saying, this is where we're going with this. God's kingdom is here. And that's when He begins to heal people, push back doctors, really to live out the blessing of God. I mean, can you imagine living for a century, having some sort of a horrible uh, disease that nobody's capable of healing? And all of a sudden, this guy comes out of nowhere, touches and you're healed. Right? Think about the woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years. All of a sudden, she's healed. She's totally better. I mean, somebody that was like possessed by demons and they're tormented in their mind, maybe intense depression, they meet Jesus and Jesus all of a sudden causes this cloud of darkness to go away and they're changed instantaneously. You get this big picture in your mind that Jesus was meant to bring as a as, as, as part of His ministry was to bring this great blessing upon so many people as they were moved and impacted by His life. So what happens is we see later on, Jesus uh, dies in His death. One of the things that happens before Jesus dies, He says to His disciples uh, in John chapter 12, verse 24, you can turn if you want, John 24 says this, He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears forth much fruit. So really what Jesus is saying here is He's prepping His leaders. The people that have been following him. He's like this. Listen, you guys like the ministry I'm doing, right? You're blessed by it. You're blessed by me. But here's what he's saying. I'm going to die. I'm not going to be here forever. But he says, I'm like a seed. The seed's going to go into the ground. It's going to die. But when a seed goes into the ground and dies, we see this every day in nature, that seed begins to germinate and grow. And what happens is a whole new tree bears fruit. Lots of fruit. Not just one fruit, not just one seed, but lots of fruit. Here's what Jesus is saying. I'm going to go, but I will continue my ministry that I started on this planet, of pushing back darkness, bringing blessing, proclaiming God's here, and I'm going to continue that through you. That's what he's saying. Here's another thing. So Jesus dies. Later on, He ends up rising again from the dead. In the book of Acts, we'll get there in a second. So if you want to turn to Acts chapter 1, um, Jesus rises again from the dead and ascends into heaven. Just before Jesus rises uh, or ascends into heaven, here's what He says to His disciples. In John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. And when He had said this, He breathed on them, and He said, Receive the Holy Spirit. So here's what Jesus does says, I'm leaving. Again, reminder to you, I'm not going to be here forever, but I'm leaving. That doesn't mean my work will stop. In fact, my work will now be multiplied. Because for me to be doing the work, I'm one guy. But what's going to happen is I'm going to leave, and in the same way that the Father sent me to come to be a blessing, push back darkness, proclaim the kingdom, announce freedom from sin, freedom to God... Through the cross, my death, my resurrection, I'm going to continue that now through you guys. And he breathes on them. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. So here's what Jesus is basically saying. The ministry will continue. Everything you saw me do will continue. But it will be continued through you guys. Acts chapter 1 basically says this. What happens after Jesus rises from the dead, he tells his disciples to go into the region of Jerusalem. And as he speaks to them, he gives them some instructions. Acts chapter 1 basically begins uh, the story of the church. It says in verse 6, And when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So these guys were literally looking for a kingdom that was very similar to King David and probably more so patterned in their mind after that of Caesar's. So in their mind they're thinking... Lord, when are we going to become a great kingdom and we're going to just be just like David and conquer all of our enemies and foes? When are we going to be like that? Jesus is like, "Mm, you guys aren't quite understanding it yet. It's not for you to even understand this or to know this type of stuff. Verse 7, he says to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that my Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Here's what happens that Jesus says is what's going to take place is is this whole movement, this resistance movement to the evil and the darkness will begin here. What's going to take place? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. He will be in you. He will live in you. And you guys will be living out the life that I have lived. That I patterned for you. Everything you saw me do, you're going to be doing that. That's the story of Acts. I mean, in sort of a nutshell. The book of Acts is a group of people called the church that were doing exactly what Jesus did on the planet. But the book of Acts continues. You know where it continues is because Jesus says this my work will begin in Jerusalem, and then it will spread into Judea, which is sort of the broader region, and then up to Samaria, which was sort of where all the heretics and the idol worshipping type pagan slash half Jew slash people that were sort of of disrepute. It says it's, it's gonna spread, but then from Samaria, it's gonna to go to the uttermost parts of the world read San Luis Obispo. So what happens is the way the work is supposed to take place, it begins in Jerusalem, goes to Judea, to Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world here in San Luis Obispo. So now there's a work of people here in San Luis Obispo that love Jesus. They love the work that God's doing. And so now it's kind of been a neat thing for us to see. For us as a church, we started off in our home, small little group of people, and we've seen ourselves grow as a body where we've kind of reached our... Judea, our Samaria, and we, now we've got people all around the world. In New Zealand, in Hungary, just all around the world. People have come from this church, from this ministry, and are living all around the world. Reaching the world. It's kind of an amazing thing. That's, And then they start their own stuff. My, my buddy who's living in New Zealand now has just been getting going and they're starting to look at ways to reach out beyond in the area where they live in Rotorua. So God, this is how God has intended for this whole thing to work and function. So he goes on to say about verse, uh, let's pick it up about verse 1. Uh, take a look at verse 10, sorry, chapter 1. It says, while they were going into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? And Jesus, who had been taken up into heaven, he will come in the same way that you saw him go up into heaven. So this is a promise that one day Jesus will come again. So Jesus tells his disciples, it's not for you guys to know when this kingdom that you're looking for will come, but it will come, and I will come, and I will be the king, and I will preside and reside over all things, but until that day, I want you to be just like I was on the planet. I want you to live. I want you to love. I want you to do everything that I have that I've done on this planet, I'm going to be doing that through you. That's called a church. Verse 1 of chapter 2 says, And when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all t- gathered together in one place. It doesn't tell us exactly where they were gathered. I have a theory on this. I actually believe that the one place that they were unified at was not traditionally the upper room that oftentimes people attribute it to. Uh, but I personally believe that it was actually on the steps of the Temple Mount, which is where most people kind of hung out, studied the Scriptures together. There's a reference to... Um, It says, and there's a sound like a rushing mighty wind filled the entire house. So you say, well, I thought of the house, right? The word house is also a metaphor used to describe the temple. First century, they described the temple as the house of the Lord. It's the house of the Lord. So here they are, I think, on the temple mount, kind of on these steps, sitting around, gathered together, worshipping, praying, maybe singing songs, studying the word of God, and all of a sudden, this radical rushing mighty wind begins to blow around them, uh, they all get these like tongues of fire on top of their head. This was the original Pentecost. It says, and divided tongues of the fire appeared on them. And verse 4, it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues as the Holy Spirit to give them utterance. That little phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit, is significant. Because this actually appears in the life of Jesus. Where when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit falls upon him And Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit. Several times, Jesus is referred to as being filled with the Holy Spirit. So I want you to think about it this way. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is not some nut job on Christian television wearing a white jacket, waving it around, and saying, wow, he is filled with the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is Jesus. You look like Jesus. Jesus was the original one who was filled with the Holy Spirit. So if you're ever kind of confused about that, being filled with the Holy Spirit, maybe you came from that church or that background, that whenever they use this phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit, you got a little bit scared, felt like running, because you're like, oh no, I don't ever want to bring my friends to this church, because something freaky will happen, they'll end up on the floor, they'll start speaking in tongues. The reality is, guys, being filled with the Holy Spirit is Jesus. You look like Jesus. Jesus was filled with the Spirit. Jesus says to his disciples, you too will be filled with the Spirit, meaning you will look like me. You'll act like me. You'll do what I do. You'll love people the way that I love people. You'll preach the Gospel the way that I preach the Gospel. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit, and now he is filling his disciples with the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, it says, And now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, devout men of every nation under heaven. And the sound of the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was speaking uh, in his own language and they were amazed and astonished saying, are not these all speaking Galileans, um, all these that were speaking Galileans and how is it that each one of us hears our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors of Rome, both Jews, proselytes, Cretans, Arabians. And they were here, and they tell them, hearing the tongues, the mighty works of God. So here's what's happening. When this particular miracle took place, they're all filled with the Spirit. They began to speak in tongues. Uh, I believe, actually, there is a gift of speaking in tongues. I think there's a couple different ways that it's viewed. One is sort of a supernatural language of the angels, I think, as Paul describes it it can be viewed more as like a prayer language. I think another way is what way we see it here in Acts chapter 2, is God gives them the special supernatural ability to speak forth. Nobody really knows what they're speaking, except the other people that speak that language. So, maybe God gives somebody the special ability, you know, let's say you're a missionary, you love Jesus, and you're going to another country where you don't speak their language, maybe God supernaturally could give you the ability to speak forth things you have no idea what you're speaking, But the person that you're speaking to who speaks another language actually understands what you're saying. I I think it's possible. And I think it's what's called or what's described as the gift of tongues. We believe in the miracle and the gift of tongues today. I think it can still happen. I think it still does happen. Okay? But it's not the issue. So what happens is Jesus speaks through these people and they hear the wonderful, mighty works of God. All these people are confused by this. Okay, Again, picture this in your mind. They're on the temple steps maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of people kicking back, watching this. They're kind of freaking out. It's a little bit windy. All these Christians, 120 of them, they've got tongues of fire on their head. They're like, this isn't a normal church service. What's happening? And all of a sudden, Peter stands up. He's like, well, I'll tell you what's happening. The Scripture says that one day God's going to come pour out His Spirit. We're going to be witnesses for Jesus. Witnesses for God's great and purposeful and serious desire to push back darkness and bring blessing. And he's doing that through Jesus. And we're just bearing witness to that. And then he goes on and he communicates to them. And by the time he gets to the end of the sermon, it's an amazing sermon, everybody's kind of asking, well, what do we got to do to be saved? To be part of this movement? To be a part of this, this new work that God is doing through His servant, Jesus Christ, who just died on the cross, who just rose again, and who just ascended into heaven. What do we got to do to believe, to be a part of this? And then Peter goes on to say, believe and be saved, or believe and be baptized. By around verse 41, it says, and they were added to that group of people that day, around 3,000 souls. That group of people is what's going to be later called or termed the church. The word church simply means gathering. It comes from uh, two Greek words that are brought together called ekklesia. Ek means and the kaleo, kaleo means to be the called out ones or the gathering of those who are called out. So here, Jesus is saying, I'm creating a movement of people that will form a resistance against evil to push back darkness, to bring forth uh, light and blessing through the Gospel, through the cross, through obedience to God and His Son. Trusting in His Son. That's what He's basically saying. Verse 42, it says, and then they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching... Fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So this group of people, what they did together, they studied the Word of God, the apostles taught them, they prayed with one another, they fellowshiped with one another, meaning they kind of hung out, and rather than just sort of being in a big group and then going home, and never taking the time to actually ask, ask the person sitting next to you what their name is, to see if, you know, where they live or anything about their life, they actually cared about them. And they said, hey, where are you from? What's your life like? Can I pray for you? Let's hang out. Let's go to lunch. They did fellowship with one another. Verse 43, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together, and all these things, they had it all in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all, as many as had need, and day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, and they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, Praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were to be saved. So here's what happens is they were meeting daily in the synagogue. This was sort of a large group meeting. And then they would actually meet in each other's houses. So, you know, think about it this way. They would meet in large group meetings, kind of hang out, everybody would sit down, take their place, hear the Bible taught, and then they would go and hang out with each other house to house. Have dinner, kick back, Play Xbox, whatever. You know, they loved Jesus. And they did things together, life together. And everybody cared about each other. They took care of each other's needs. That's an important thing to understand. That was what the church was. That was what they did. They cared for one another. So, as we look at that, that hopefully gives you a little bit of the context as to where the church came from. Now, I want to ask the question, what is the church? I want to give you my definition. This is kind of what I made up. This is what, and I'll explain it in a second here. But this is my definition of the church. The church is a community of believers who value and confess Jesus Christ, who obey Scripture by organizing under qualified leadership. They gather regularly for preaching, worship, and observance of the sacraments, baptism, and communion, and they scatter, empowered by the Spirit, to live out the great commandment to love God and love others, and the great commission to preach the gospel to all, the glory of God into the joy of all people. This is what the church is. There's a lot of people that will kind of try to look at it and say, well, you know, we're the church, we know what the church is, but in reality, it's really not the church. It might be a bunch of disgruntled people that don't like a bunch of other people, and so they gather together in a home and they call that church. I don't, I don't know if that's church. People kind of sit behind a computer screen today. They don't want to hang out with other people because they hate people. But they want to hear Bible studies and they want to maybe get some Bible reading, so they go online and sort of think, this is church, I'm part of the church. What I want to try to understand is that the way the Bible describes church may be different than the way we're hearing it described today. So the question that we have to ask is, what's correct? Does the things shift? Does it change? Can we modify it with technology, with the usage of modern technology? Or is there a consistency or a constancy that I think is important to understand? So I want to break this down and take a look at this one by one. Okay, the next slide is going to say this. That First of all, the church is a community of believers who value and confess Jesus Christ. So first of all, let's kind of start with the most basic aspect of it. It's a group of people or a gathering of people that hold in common the fact that Jesus is Lord over all. We love Jesus with all of our heart, mind, soul, strength, and might. We value Jesus. We value the Father. We value the Holy Spirit. This is community. A lot of times I think... What we have today is really in the church. We call ourselves a church. What we have is what we think is community, but it's not community. It's actually affinity. Let me describe the difference. Affinity is when I hang out with people that buy the same clothes that I buy and drive the same type of cars that I like and listen to the same type of music that I listen to. Those are people that I will choose to open my life up with. That's called affinity. All right, let me give you another example. I'm a surfer. I like to surf. Affinity is, I only hang out with surfers. If you're a boogie boarder, I don't hang out with you. You are a speed bump, and I won't hang out with you. That's affinity. All right? Figure out speed bump in your own mind. All right? That's affinity. Saying, I refuse to hang out with somebody that is different than me, that does not have or share the same taste of me. That's affinity. Affinity. Community is when we say, you know what, we are part, we might not agree on a lot of things, but what we do hold in common is that which is most important, is that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, Lord over all. We have that in common and we share that with one another. Therefore, we're part of a body, we love each other. You know the funny thing is about community? You don't even have to necessarily fully like those people you're in community with. Alright? You're like, do I have to like the body border? You don't have to like them, but you got to love them. All right? I mean, you don't have to like certain people's tastes or style of music, which in reality are really stupid things to judge or to gauge relationships on because it all changes. But community is when we say, you know, what we have in common is Jesus Christ. I love you. I will be a part of you because Jesus Christ is what is utmost in our lives. That takes maturity. That takes the Spirit of God. That's what, it calls, that's what it means to be called part of the church. We obey the Scriptures. The Scriptures become the basis of what we believe and trust. Jesus obeyed the Scriptures. You're like, I oh, don't who cares about the Scriptures. They change. Well, Jesus cares about the Scriptures. Jesus taught the Scriptures. Jesus used the Scriptures. Jesus called for His followers to live out obedience to the Scriptures. The Scriptures are not secondary. They're primary. Also, under qualified leadership. Now, what I want to make sure that we understand with regard to this, I don't have a lot of time to go into all this, but the Bible does actually talk about leadership. I know there's a lot of discussion about this today. People are like, I don't believe the church is to have any type of pastors or leadership. We're all the same. Well, where you misunderstand this is that really, nobody's saying that there's a distinction, meaning that we're not, or not distinction, but uh, somebody's better than the next. There may be distinctions, but there is a unity amongst that. It's the same thing with marriage. There is unity within a marriage. A man is equal to his woman. However, there might be different roles. Jesus, what I want for us to understand with regard to leadership, is Jesus is the senior pastor of this church. The word pastor just simply means a leader or elder or however you want to view it. Jesus is senior pastor. The, uh, Peter talks about this in chapter 5, verse 4. He says that he is the chief Shepherd or chief overseer over our souls. Now, almost 15 years ago, I and another friend of mine named Chris Lawson, we basically started this church with Jesus. Really, we didn't start it. If you just kind of boil it down, Jesus started it. He was the one that, he was the apostle of this church. He started it. He happened to use us. We met in our house for a little bit. We grew, it outgrew that, moved into a Seventh-day Adventist church, outgrew that. Now we've been meeting here. Going to be outgrowing this soon. Moving to a new building. And Jesus is the one that established or planted this church. He is senior pastor. I am an elder or a pastor. I'm one elder slash pastor amongst several elder slash pastors. The names in the New Testament are synonymous. Elder, pastor, I'm one of eight. Okay. I I may have the role of teaching, but that doesn't mean that I'm any better or more significant than the others. We are together unified. Some of the pastors slash elders are paid full-time because the amount of work requires that. Others are vocational, meaning they work full-time jobs. But the job of the elders and pastors are to be appointed by Jesus to oversee and love, care for, tend to the needs of the sheep. When they don't do that, then they begin to err, take advantage, and Jesus can remove them. But the reality is is that it's under, you got to understand those that are to be good leaders are ones that love the sheep. Really, elders ought to be the ones that serve the most, give the most money, give the most time, and give the most of their energies. They love the sheep. But then also, too, first, uh, Philippians tells us that there are also deacons, and then there's saints. So, these are the specific roles within the church that we see that are outlined in the Bible. Also, too, the concept of gathering regularly. Hebrews tells us this, that we are to gather, not avoid, not neglect the gathering together of ourselves, as do some. So, there is a prohibition against running away and avoiding, okay? There's a lot of reasons why people avoid the gathering together of the saints, I know Christians today, or people that call themselves Christians, are like, I don't go to church because I hate Christians. Well, either A, you're not a Christian, or B, you just don't understand the heart of Jesus for His people. You just don't understand it. It's not an issue of, I got to go to church. It's like, I get to. I get to be a part of the saints. I get to be a part of helping and serving one another. Being a part of this community that Jesus really loves. We gather together regularly for the preaching, what we're doing right now. Worship, as we sing, we give God our praise, our love. Communion, baptism, these are called sacraments. Communion and baptism whereby we remember Jesus through the communion elements and we are baptized. And then we also scatter to go forth and to live our lives for Jesus through the great commandment. We love God, love one another. Now get this, when you love people, is that a blessing? Is it a blessing when people are really loving? Yeah. Right? You guys are not very helpful today. I love you, but you're not really helpful. Yes, the great commandment when people love, that actually is a blessing. Alright? So when we go out and we fulfill the great commandment to love, it's actually a big, big blessing. And the great commission, which is to preach and communicate the Gospel. All of this is to the glory of God. God is ultimate is what we're seeking to establish and exalt His name into the joy of all peoples. Meaning, we want to see all people brought into the joy of God. You say, you know, Ryan, it sounds like you're trying to convert me. Yes, I am. Yes, that's what we're trying to do. I'm trying to convert you. I want to see you know Jesus. Alright? There's nothing for us to be apologetic about that. Right? It's like, that's what we want to do. Duh. We love people. We don't want to see them separated from God. We don't want to see them go to hell. We want to see them change. We want to see them have life. Yes, we want to see you converted. All right? Well, that's that's not very nice. Well, then tell that to the advertising companies as well, okay? Because they're also trying to get converts as well. Converts to McDonald's. Converts to shoes, convert, whatever, porn into, I mean, you can go on and on and on. Everybody's trying to make converts. What's wrong with us trying to say, we want to see people know Jesus and know life? All right? Is that a good thing? Okay, thank you for answering. The next one is this. The next one is this. Is, uh... Really, what are some of the other... Uh, what, what does the next one say? What, is, uh, what are some of the other names of the church... I'm going to go through these ones really quickly here. Um, Really, the church is described by several other names. The family of God and the flock of God. Galatians refers to it as God's Israel or the Israel of God. Paul refers to it as that. Uh, In Ephesians, uh, 1 Corinthians, there's also some verses that Paul refers to it as a body, also as a bride of Christ. Um, Also, Paul refers to the church in 1 Corinthians as the temple of God. This is a beautiful image of the church being the temple. you got to think, you got to understand, first century, the way the Jews viewed the temple was the temple was the place on the planet where heaven and earth connected. That's the way Jews viewed the temple. And I understand that. First century Jews, when you ask them, where does God show up? Ah, God shows up in Jerusalem at the temple. That's where God shows up. So Paul takes this radical picture and he says, listen, you guys who are the church of the temple. that means that means that the glory beauty goodness greatness kindness mercy of god is to be seen everywhere from your house to starbucks to the place where you work to school to family reunions if you're a christian the glory of god is all over our lives as we are the temple okay the second the last one is we're almost done here is to ask the question, really, what weakens the church? What weakens the church? There's a beautiful thing called the church. What weakens it? Because there's definitely weaknesses in it because it's made up of people that are weak. Okay, here's one. Pastors and leaders, they can weaken the church. I mean, definitely. I mean, if you've seen this in the past, in the history, when a pastor falls or a leader falls, it weakens the church. You know, I want to say something about this, because a lot of times people misunderstand. They don't quite understand. There is a tremendous amount of pressure that gets placed on pastors. Do you know that um, over my life of being a pastor, almost 15 years now, a lot of I've had a lot of good friends that I've literally watched start a church. It's grown. A lot of blessing, is, a lot of favor has been upon it. And what happens is at some point, either they bomb out sexual immorality, uh, issues of finances, or the guy just burns out. Um, flames out, whatever. It's just all these types of things could happen because a pastor can bomb out and just simply weaken the church. Well, a lot of times people don't really understand, there is a lot of pressure upon pastors. Okay, I'm going to tell you this because it's good for you to know and I don't get to say it very often, so I'll tell you. All right? For me being a pastor, there has been times where I have literally hit my wall. I mean, there have been occasions where I've literally felt I'm losing my mind. Times where I've almost just thought, I think I'm gonna, I'm just gonna lose. My brain is over here, and my my actual head's right here. Something's not right. I'm losing it, and there's a lot of pressure. People have great expectations of pastors. They have a lot of uh, expectations for them to do things for them. They email they expect responses immediately they call they expect responses immediately. The pastor's not there within a particular time frame. They get mad, they get upset. they leave the church, send bad emails they 're angry on top of that. A pastor has a church to lead in terms of gathering together with other elders and leaders to work together, sometimes staff to take care of um, phone calls to answer people that are constantly have got really serious needs going through divorces, they need counseling, they need time together to hang out, good wisdom to be given. Uh, a pastor has to take care of his spouse, to love his wife with all of his heart. He's got kids to raise to take care of. All of these things sort of work together, sort of coalesce together to bring about a lot of pressures that can fall upon that. And when you have people that are constantly complaining, upset, maybe occasional death threats because people are upset with you, it can be very difficult. That's what happens. There's a lot of pressure that can fall upon shoulders of pastors. And some pastors just simply fall out. But that ends up weakening the church. Another one is false teachers and prophets. Jesus warns against us. Beware of false teachers and prophets for obvious reasons. They teach things that are not consistent with the Bible, which ends up leading them away from Jesus, the Good Shepherd. Another one is consumer Christians. Believe it or not. These are people that come to church regularly. They come to gatherings. They come to be a part. They come to be fed. They come to be a, to be served. But rarely or seldomly do they serve. These are people that want a lot, but they never give any. They don't give any of their time. They don't give any of their money. They don't give any of their energies. But they really want a lot. Alright? This happens a lot. Consumer Christianity. Consumer mentality. These are people that... You know, are going around from church to church. They've got like six churches they go to on a regular basis and they do this because it's like they don't want to commit to anything. Alright? They're like that boyfriend. Alright? They're like that and it's, 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 they're the ones that suck life out of the church. They weaken it. Alright? Now I realize you know, in our church, what happens is we, almost any season, we've got people that are kind of checking things out. If you're here checking things out, we welcome you. We hope you find a place. Get plugged in. If it's here, get plugged in. If it's not here, go find a good church with good teaching, with good pastors, people that love you. Get plugged in there. Serve that church. Serve Jesus by serving that church. Alright? Stop dating it. All right? Stop treating it like a junior high girlfriend. Just get involved and love it. Be a part of it. Be a part of the work. Be a part of the resistance movement against evil in the body, to serve it. Okay? If you're here and you're not a Christian, we don't have any expectations of you. We just want you to know Jesus. Okay? That's about as simple as it is. But if you're here, and you call Calvary your home, people ask you what church you go to, you're like, I go to Calvary slow. And you do nothing. You don't ever serve Whenever there are announcements made, you're like, hey, we need help with this, and you do nothing ever, I'm trying to tell you as a pastor, because I love you, it gets really troubling fast. Because we have so much stuff that needs to be done. And I'll tell you what's more troubling for me as a pastor is to watch people get burned out who are trying to do the work and nobody's coming alongside helping them. That's a bummer for me. I hate it when I see people because the body is not coming alongside saying, you need help? You need help? Call us my church. I love this body. I'll help. I'll serve. That's my scolding. You're welcome. The next one is sin. Sin will also weaken the church. When people do not get away or move away from sin, if you call yourself a Christian, John will say, and you continue in sin, then you lie and the truth is not in you. Okay, A church our size. Here's what happens. And I know this happens because I've hear stories. I talk to people. The reality is is that there are people that come to this church that claim to be Christians. Saturday night, they're out drunk, having sex with their girlfriend, come to church and they want to be a part and serve and keep doing that. That's a pattern of their lifestyle. And I want to tell you today, please, on behalf of the rest of the body, please stop. Jesus hates sin because what happens is sin destroys the body and it weakens the church. Which, by weakening the church, is doing nothing to curb evil. In fact, if anything, it's like a Trojan horse that welcomes evil into the church and God's glory is not given to its maximum. I'm asking you, if you claim to be a Christian and you are constantly living in sin, you harbor bitterness, you're sleeping with your boyfriend, you're living with your girlfriend, I'm asking on the behalf of the body, please stop sinning. Repent. Turn back to Jesus. He forgives. He loves you. That's my other rebuke. Last one is this. Last one is this. Is What is it that strengthens the church? What is it that strengthens the church? What it is that strengthens the church is when Christians who are called by God's name recognize that they are part of this massive movement called the church, which Jesus purchased with his own blood. To push back darkness. To establish the glory of God. To communicate with our lives and with our lips how great our God is to the glory of God, and to the joy of all peoples. And when we begin to realize, it's just like, listen, the greatest appeal that I can make to you is to not just give you a bunch of rules, like read your Bible more, go to church more, do this more, give more. It's not about that. It's about just simply saying to you, be who God saved you to be. Period. Be who Jesus called you to be. Which is really an embodiment of Him on the planet. To love one another. To serve one another. To communicate the Gospel. How do you do that? Well, the how is simple. The Holy Spirit. Jesus says He'll come upon you and you'll be witnesses for Me. The Holy Spirit is the one that also helps us to push back the darkness in our own life. When He takes up residence inside of us, He pushes back the darkness in our lives. And in doing so, calls us into this body, this movement called the church globally to be a part of this working, this outworking of God's greatness and God's glory to preach forth the gospel, to communicate the grace of God, the kindness of God throughout all the earth so that people would see how great our God is. Guys, that's what the church is. It is really simple. It is God's way in which He moves on this planet to pronounce, to communicate, to announce His ways and His grace and His kindness and His goodness is through a bunch of imperfect dysfunctional people who are gathered together in community to worship Him, to love Him, to study His Word, and then yet to go forth back into this world to live forth the Spirit-filled life that Jesus lived. Just be who you're called to be. If you're here and you're not a Christian, the one thing I would just ask you to do, repent of your sin. Man, Jesus is a good Master. He is a good Lord that has great blessing and life to give to you in exchange for the slavery of sin. We're going to respond right now to the Lord. I'm going to pray. And we're going to respond by singing songs of worship and love to God. We're going to also respond by giving our tithes and our offerings and just give them back to God. If you're, again, if you're one of our guests, please don't give anything. We just want you to know Christ. And, and if you're here and you, know, you want to give, that's fine. You can give. But just give out of a joyful heart. This is a, it's a joy to be able to give all things to God. But we're also, if you're here and you need prayer for anything that's going on in your life, we've got a little area over here. We invite you to maybe just have someone pray for you. If things are going on in your life, you just need someone to talk to. Maybe there's issues of sin that you just kind of feel bound by. And you want to get rid of it, but you feel yourself kind of trapped. And Jesus can set you free from that.